A few weeks ago, we've entered into, we entered into the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, and we return there again this morning. So take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we are now at verse 6, verse 6, and we're in this longer section that's going to make it all the way to verse 16, but this morning we will work through this first section of this greater section, uh, and uh, we'll begin in verse 6, and we'll work our way at least down to verse, uh, at least about verse 9 uh, this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 6, and our, our topic this morning, we are looking at uh, the qualifications of a good servant, a good minister, a good pastor of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, and here it is, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise, or bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, these things command and teach. Father, we pray for the help and the work of your spirit now. We ask that he would be with us, that he would give us understanding of your word, of its implications for our lives he would use it, Father, to bring salvation and life to those apart from Christ. And I pray for the help of your spirit. I pray that he would rest upon me as I speak. We pray for the anointing and unction of your spirit and for the glory of your name through the exposition of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Many of you are familiar with the ministry and the life of the, of the pastor Robert Murray McShane. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 19th century. His ministry and life could be identified, uh, they could be identified with the words that we find here uh, in verse 6, a good minister of Jesus Christ. His, his life and ministry could be identified as that, as two words, faithfulness and godliness. Faithfulness and godliness. On his gravestone, Tracy and I were looking at headstones yesterday at the cemetery next to the church where we were at. It is interesting how many of the older gravestones have those epithets, right? Something written, usually a, a, a scripture or something written about that individual. On McShane's headstone is written this, 
Listen to this, quote, died, died in the 30th year of his age and the seventh year of his ministry. 30 years old, seven years into ministry. And then it goes on to say, walking closely with God. An example for the believers in word and conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, he ceased not day and night to labor and watch for souls. And that must have been a big headstone, or must be, or that's awfully small writing. But you can see the qualities of his life there. Again, they're marked with the, those around him as they laid him to rest. These were the marks that they saw in his life. They, were, they put it on his headstone. And again, you can see how they're highlighted with faithfulness and godliness. McShane was also known. Listen to this. He was known for his, well, his famous statement. Quote, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. End quote. And I think what he meant by that is, is, is he was thinking of verse 16 of our passage that we will get to. At the end of this section, in this section that speaks of the qualifications of a faithful or good servant of Jesus Christ, I think this passage, and especially verse 16, was in his mind when he made such a statement. You remember verse 16? Look, look there in chapter 4 and in verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine... Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And so you can see this idea of my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Now, in the passage this morning and next week, we have instructions of what it is to be a faithful minister in Jesus Christ, a, fa a faithful minister, minister of Jesus Christ. We see here of what he is to be and what he is to do. We've, we've seen somewhat of this throughout this epistle. Here we have instructions to Timothy. Listen, instructions to Timothy and all future ministers of Christ who are laboring, listen, who are laboring, as we would say, during the last days, the last times that he's already spoken about early on in this chapter. That is, those that are laboring from the time of Christ and his coming until his second advent, during the difficult days of the last days, the last times, the days of apostasy, these are to be qualifications for the minister of Jesus Christ. These are exhortations for him to be and to do. Now, this section that we are beginning this morning, as we will work our way through it, you will see that verse 6, verse 6, and it goes all the way to verse 11, that the central theme or thought is there in verse 6, and it's Paul's words to Timothy, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. 
And so let us begin. Beginning in verse 6, number 1, point number 1. What we find here of what the eldership is to be, young men who who give evidence that God is at work in their life and they have a desire for the vocation of gospel ministry. What our elders, what I am to be, we begin to see those qualifications here in verse 6. And they are high qualifications. And they should humble us. Again, as we've said through some of these messages, this should stir you as the people of God to pray for the elders, to pray for me and to pray for the eldership. That we would be the men that we ought to be. But look at this, verse 6, we see, number one, that a good minister, a faithful minister, is to faithfully teach the Word of God. A good minister is to faithfully teach the Word of God. That's what we find in verse 6. If you instruct the brethren, that word instruct, it means to set forth, to lay down we, we often speak in those terms, to lay down doctrine, to instruct, to teach doctrine. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be, he says, a good, and that word for good there, it's the word we get beautiful from, excellent from. You will be a good, faithful minister or servant. And the word he uses, servant here, is the same root word that we saw in chapter 3 that has to do with a deacon. You will be a good minister or servant, but he's not, he's not a deacon like the office that we see in chapter 3, but he's a servant of Christ. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Now, Paul begins this section with this instruction to Timothy and to the church uh, at Ephesus and its leadership. If you remember the difficulties that they were having there with false teachers that had entered into the life of the church. And again, when I say church leadership, I mean ministers of the gospel and the eldership of the local church. In verse 6, again, he says, if you instruct the brethren in these things... There's a reminder here, a reminder here of the importance of Timothy's teaching ministry. These things, in the immediate context, it is the things concerning verses 1 through 5, those, the last day apostasy, the false teaching of the teachers, those false teachers, that he is to warn, to rebuke, to correct, to remind them of these things that are confronting them, that they would be aware of these things. And in the broader context, it's, it's everything that we find in 1 Timothy. And if you remember, re recall the words of Paul as he actually launched into this letter to Timothy and the Ephesian congregation in the very opening verses. The opening verses. Notice verse 3 of chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Listen to this. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Here it is. That you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. 
nor give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So if Timothy, if Timothy was to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, he was to be a faithful teacher of apostolic doctrine. And this, listen, this is the positive aspect of the, of the pastoral teaching ministry. There's a positive aspect and a negative aspect. But here's the positive. That is the word that we find here, doctrine, or in some of your Bibles it's translated teaching. It will keep, it will keep popping up through this section as we move through it. If you notice, it's there in verse 6. You'll find it again. Uh, notice verse 13. Till I come, give attention to the reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. You'll find it again in verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. This doctrine, our teaching, this theme will continue to arise, and there's an emphasis on it. And it seems that as we move through this, sec this entire section, when we do get to verse 16, it is a kind of crescendo, as we may say, a climax, that Timothy, pay attention to the doctrine, the apostolic word. Pay attention to your way of life and the implications of this doctrine upon it. So a faithful minister of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the church through the teaching of the eldership is to labor and be faithful in the instruction of sound doctrine, apostolic doctrine. In other words, biblical truth, the word of God. And again, there is this positive and negative aspect of this instruction. In verse 6, this is the positive. He's to be teaching, he's to set forth good doctrine. If he's to be a good minister, he's to be teaching these things. He's to be teaching good doctrine, which are the words of faith that nourish the souls of God's people. That would nourish Timothy's soul. This doctrine, again, is found in the Word of God. It is the Scriptures. It is the Bible. And it is that which feeds the people of God. Again, along this same thought, listen to the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. You see, the eldership are to be shepherds. Ultimately, we're really under shepherds, under the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are shepherds. We are shepherds. There's no, there's no better word, no better word that can describe the work of ministry than shepherd. There's a number of words found throughout the history of the church, throughout the Bible, but there's something about shepherd, isn't there, that captures it, the care, the nurture, the feeding. And so you see that the, the eldership are shepherds that lead the people of God to green pastures of God's word to feed. And it is with God's word where the people of God feed and they are strengthened and they are nourished and they are to grow and mature as the people of God. You see that? So again, 
if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, good teaching, which you have carefully followed. Secondly, a good minister, number two, is to warn the church of error. He's to warn the church of error. A good minister is to warn the church of error. Look at verse seven, verse seven. But reject, reject, reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. So, if there is this positive aspect of instructing in the truth, the apostolic doctrine, there is the negative side of this work of a good minister and the eldership. And that is, it is to be a teaching that warns and refutes the false teachers and their doctrinal error. Well, that's not the focus of our ministry. We are to be aware of the error and warn our people and refute that error when it is found. The false teachers and their doctrinal error, if you remember, it had entered into the life of the Ephesian church, even into the eldership, it appears, as we read over in Acts chapter 20. Again, this error we begin to hear about even more in here in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. And then we see this imperative here. We hear about the error in the first five verses, and then here now in verse 7, there's an imperative, a command. Reject, refute the false teaching that Paul describes, and notice how he describes it, as old wives' fables. So it, it's, it's not something where the elders can say, we can only stay positive. We're not going to touch on negative things. I know that, that's huge in our culture right now, but we have an imperative, a command here. Reject, refute, reject the false teaching and teachers here. In this case, he speaks of it as old wives' fables. That's an interesting word or wording. We had to reject this false doctrine. Again, that which we heard somewhat about already in verses one through five. But he calls it here profane. Profane and old wives fables. It's, it's profane or some of your Bibles have it as wordly or godless teaching. That's the word underneath there. Wordly, godless, profane. It can also mean unholy. We translate it unholy. Paul is contrasting. Do you see this? He's contrasting the good doctrine of the apostles of Jesus Christ, the word of God, versus the false doctrine of of the false teachers. Their teaching, by, by apostolic doctrine, is good, and he'll even use the word healthy, sound. The false teachers, their teaching is profane, godless, 
unholy, worldly. Why one leads to godliness, right living, nourishes, strengthens, matures, we find here that the other leads to ungodly living, leads to destruction. And notice he not only calls it profane, but he says an old wives' fables, or underneath that is the Greek word, we get the word myths, myths, myths. He used the same word again back over in chapter one when he launched right into this book in chapter one, verse four. Nor give heed to fables. That's underneath that. Myths. Give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. And so the doctrine, what he means by this expression, old wives' fables. He's saying that the doctrine of the false teachers is, it's not true. They are myths. They're fables. They're lies. As we've already said, the demonically, devilishly, uh, by the devil, inspired lies, like back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. They're lies. And again, this expression, old wives' fables, was an expression used in the ancient world that meant like an imaginary tale. Yeah. An imaginary tale. I think we can all think of of those kind of imaginary tales growing up that we would hear like a grandmother maybe would say. I can remember uh, my, my, my grandmother on my mom's side and my mom even saying it. If, if, if someone was pregnant and you were a kid, I can remember this as a, as a child, and you would see a woman pregnant, you know, you're a little kid. You're thinking, Oh, what's wrong with her? What, why? What's going on there? And I can remember my mom saying, well, she must have swallowed a watermelon seed. <laughs> That's what I think of when I hear old wives fables. Yeah. Yeah. But here he's speaking of the, the myths of the false teachers. So remember that. That the teaching of the false, that these false teachers are imaginary tales. The profane, the godless. And while he keeps speaking of true doctrine, good doctrine that builds up, that nourishes, that strengthens, he keeps saying this leads to godly, godlessness. This doctrine does not nourish, it's like poison. It tears down. It weakens. It ultimately brings death and destruction. Now, jumping ahead in verse 11, we're going to come back to that next week. But in verse 11, notice he says, these things command and teach. Command and teach, he said, these things. And so, again, we're reminded that there is a, a positive and a negative aspect 
to the teaching ministry of a good minister of Jesus Christ. And when he says, these things command and teach, and he'll eventually say, take heed to the public reading of the scriptures, this is to reveal to us that there, that for Timothy, one part of his public ministry and the public ministry of the eldership is this negative and aspect of teaching, refuting error, correcting error, and setting forth truth of apostolic doctrine. I think this also, this entire section, while he's writing to Timothy, again, the implications as he writes to Timothy, as he's to labor there at Ephesus as a representative, an apostolic representative, but these things he would be instructing to the eldership at Ephesus. They were to hear these words as this letter would have been read to the congregation. I think we should see this as connected to the qualifications of elder found over in chapter 3. You remember that? A bishop or elder or overseer then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and then it says this, able to teach. Able to teach. While all the elders might not have the same kind of gifting and abilities, there should be some kind of ability to teach, to instruct in the truth and refute error. And then number three. Back to verse seven again. The third one is a good minister. There are, there are now the implications of this teaching the truth, refuting error. And that is number three. A good minister is to discipline himself toward godliness. A good minister is to discipline himself toward godliness. Again, verse seven. But reject old wives' fables. And then he says this. And... And exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise yourself toward godliness. And then he, he adds something to this. Verse 8. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You see, Timothy was not only to teach others the faithful word, but he himself was to take in the nourishing word for himself, for his own soul. He is to be a faithful student of the word of God himself for his own growth and maturity. And out of that overflow, he would teach and instruct others. He is to exercise the result of receiving the truth and of sound doctrine is that he is to exercise himself toward godliness, Paul says there in verse 7. And Paul's using, it's interesting here, he's using an athletic metaphor. And he does this more than once. He'll do it over in 1 Corinthians. He'll do it in 2 Timothy. But he's using it an athletic metaphor. Sometimes he uses a soldier metaphor, and now he's using an athletic metaphor. So the good minister, notice his language, is to exercise, or some of your Bibles will translate that, train, train, exercise, or train yourself like a spiritual athlete. So we have, at times you're to be like a warrior, soldier, other times a farmer. I can even think of one place you're compared to being an ox. 
But here, spiritual athlete. I'm sure in the backdrop was the ancient world, the, the, the Olympics there, the coming out of Athens and Greece. Discipline yourself, train yourself, be disciplined like a, a good spiritual athlete. The eldership, a faithful pastor, is to be faithfully laboring in the word as he publicly teaches, as he sets forth doctrine to others. But he himself, the elders together, they are individually laboring in the word and are to be growing in the knowledge of the truth. As a faithful minister, he's to be strengthened by the word. And by that, he will not only be able to exhort or refute error, but he will grow in teaching the truth to others. But personally, he himself will grow in doctrine and in life. What we're, what we're seeing here, church, remember this. For some reason, people have in their heads, as we've said previously uh, in, in times past, people hear this word doctrine, not realizing it's, it's just the biblical word for teaching, the content of biblical truth. And they say, this is not practical. Doctrine's not practical. But what we're finding out here is that it's eternally profitable and practical. The truth of God leads to godly living. It leads to godliness. What we take in, what we believe, what we embrace, what we put our eternal weight in and rest in is transformative and has eternal consequences. As a good minister, Timothy was to discipline himself in the study of God's word. So are we. Now he disciplined himself in the study of the scriptures, all of its teachings, and the implications that are brought to bear on his life. Now, with that being said, let, let me say this. What we're seeing here about Timothy is true of all of us is to be true for all of us. This is true for all of God's people. The word of God, by the spirit of God, will work in the life of the believer to grow the believer in the truth and in godliness or Christ-likeness or holiness. We, we call this sanctification, right? Through the spirit and word. We heard some of this this weekend, didn't we? If you were if you were down at uh, Redeeming Grace Church. The word of God by the spirit of God. The work in the life of the believer. To grow him in godliness, in other words, Christ likeness. Godliness, holiness. Again, notice verse eight again. Verse eight again. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, 
having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Now, we all know that faithful bodily exercise, it profits. It profits. It builds muscle. It strengthens, right? However, it only profits little. Now, Paul is not against bodily exercise, no. But he's contrasting something here. He's, he's making a comparison. He's saying, keep things in perspective. Bodily exercise only profits little, for it only lasts in this short life. It only profits in this short life. In other words, it only has temporary consequences for this present age because it's passing away. We're all passing away. And there's a lot of things that we might do we think that are trying to preserve us for a little while longer. But ultimately, it's temporal. It's just passing away. However, godliness. Notice again what he says. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness, taking in biblical truth, by the Spirit of God, the implications are brought to bear upon one life. It's profitable. The implications of it is profitable for all things. Why? Because it, it has the promise of the life that now is in this world and that which is to come. You see, godliness, verse 8, has effects for not only this age, but also for that which is to come. Right? This age and the age to come. It's much better. More profitable. Eternally. Having promise, verse 8, of the life that now is and that which is to come. His point is this. When he's making that contrast, he's saying that godliness Growing in the knowledge of the truth, its implications upon your life, its transforming effects toward holiness, this godliness is infinitely or has infinitely greater value than bodily exercise, which is only for this age. Do you see that? It's infinitely greater because it has to do with the life that not, not only is now is, but that which is to come. All right, we're going to pick there. We'll pick up right there next week. But let me give you some application. And then we will move toward the table. First of all. Now listen closely. What we've observed here in this passage this morning. Yes, it is to be immediately applied to all pastors, to all elders of the church. We are to be laboring in these things. Studying the scriptures, learning apostolic doctrine, grasping it, 
and then seeing its implications and growing in godliness. However, however, the leadership of the church are to be examples as shepherds to the entire flock, right? So these things are to be seen ultimately as instructions for all of us. The entire flock, every man, every woman, every child that claims the name of Christ. We are to be growing in the truth of God's word. We are to be aware of error and re rejecting it, refuting it. We are to be embracing biblical truth, apostolic doctrine, embracing it and bringing it near by the Spirit of God, embracing its life-transforming effect by the Spirit and all the numerous implications for our lives. We are to grow in the truth of God's Word. and its implications that lead to holiness. You see, apart from doctrine, apostolic doctrine, godliness just doesn't come out of the air. Truth comes into our heads, sinks in our hearts and souls, and the Spirit of God erupts and uses that truth transformatively in our lives. To be negligent of apostolic doctrine is to be negligent of your soul. You understand that? Secondly, there there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things that a church and church leadership can lead the people of God into. This is all around us. But nothing, nothing is as important as the faithful instruction of God's word. There's nothing important as important as the faithful instruction of God's word and the public ministry of the gathered church in the state of worship where the spirit is working. Faithfulness for a minister, faithfulness for the eldership, faithfulness in the pulpit ministry. I mentioned this morning about for some of you some of you are, are newer you're still getting to know us we're getting to know you some of you have been with us for a while now let me say this we are if, if, if you're looking for the perfect church we're not it 
In fact, the moment we allow you into membership, that, you see the problem there, right? And we are of the Puritan tradition, the Reformation tradition. So we're into purity in that sense. We're into truth and pressing on into it. But we're not the perfect church. But I would challenge you. I would challenge you. Whatever your background may be and what you are looking for in a church for yourself, for your family. It's not as much as a perfect church. As a faithful church, a true church. Are you willing to embrace a people that are faithfully laboring? Not perfectly, but we're faithfully laboring. And that we're a true church, the people, the gathered people of God. And we meet all the Reformation marks of a true church. But are you willing to be part of us with all of our warts and shortcomings, but faithfully labor alongside of us for the sake of your soul and for your family? That's the question. That's the question. Not only do we see this issue of truth here, but I, I would dare to say we've, we, we saw in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 15, you remember the church was, the church is to be the pillar and ground of, of the truth. And I would say what we're reading here about what a faithful minister is to be and to do, what the eldership is to be and to do, and as that presses into the congregation, the truth of God's word, the truth of doctrine, and the godliness that it results in, the, the, the transforming work of the spirit of the word, that is how the visible church models this and represents this pillar and ground of truth. Christ saves Christ redeems, Christ transforms. Do you see that? And let me close with this. Again, there are other implications. We'll go and pick them up. We will pick them up as we continue to move, move through this chapter. Uh, in verse, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Why? Because, because we trust, we trust in the living God. Do you see that? Because we trust in the living God, who's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Our trust is in the living God, the one true God who has sent his son and the son has come as redeemer for the world. But in particular, savingly to those and those only that believe. Yeah. Believers. 
And so it's this Redeemer that we declare, that we preach, that all of our doctrine revolves around our great throne God and the sending of His Son and the implications of His Son and its saving, His saving mercies. But you find out here, it's not just enough. We talked about saving grace this weekend at the conference. It's not just enough to set forth Christ and for you to sit here this morning and go, yeah, I acknowledge, I've heard about Jesus. I grew up hearing about Him. I acknowledge Him. Yeah, that's good. I hope you acknowledge Him. I hope you believe in Him. That historically, He lived and walked upon the earth. That historically, He hung on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead. But do you believe? Do you personally not only believe that truth, but do you not only assent to it, but do you trust in it? Do you believe in it for the saving of your soul? That is the question. And if you have not embraced him with saving faith, resting and trusting in him, Alone, not by your works of righteousness, but with the empty hands of faith, you embrace him. He is the savior of believers. Turn to him and be saved. Let us pray.